This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. A brutal assault on two employees left one woman dead and the other with an unbelievable testimony. This is the Brittany Norwood story. Good morning, Amy. Hello, Megan. Your lighting looks very pretty today. You don't mean that I look very pretty today? <laughs> <laughs> I do. Uh, ha, ha, ha. Okay. That's actually funny. I thought it was no, funny too. you look too. very pretty today. Well, James just got us all new lighting for the studio because we were talking about doing some stuff on YouTube. So we got, you know, the proper lighting set up here. And I appreciate the compliment. Yeah, we should just start putting our conversations right on YouTube. We probably could. Today's episode was suggested by one of our listeners, Michela, who wrote in asking for our theories on the case. I have heard of this case before, but I didn't know of the details. How about you? Have you heard of the Lululemon murder? I have. I've heard it covered on other podcasts before we were podcasters, when I used to actually listen to other podcasts. Well, you still do. You just don't listen to crime ones anymore. Yes. I don't listen to true crime anymore, but I did hear this case on a podcast before we became podcasters. Okay. So I'm sure you're going to teach me some stuff, though. I think so. There were two women involved in this case, Brittany Norwood and Jaina Murray. But I'm choosing to focus on Brittany. And by the end, I kind of hope you'll see why. So let's begin with an introduction to Brittany Norwood. Brittany was born in the state of Washington in 1982, and she was 29 years old at the time of this case. Brittany was one of nine children whose parents owned an upholstery business, and reportedly they were a very close family. Many described her as fun, talented, bright, and ambitious. Brittany was an accomplished athlete, so much so that she landed a soccer scholarship at Long Island University after high school. But Brittany also had a history of lying and theft. She got caught on several occasions stealing from friends and small businesses, but she was always able to avoid any official trouble. However, after she joined that Long Island University soccer team in 2003, Brittany was found stealing from her teammates and she lost her scholarship and was expelled. But she was determined to become successful in another arena. So Brittany decided to see if she could become a personal trainer. It would be a good fit for her with her athleticism and her love of sports. And it also didn't require a college degree. So she moved to Washington, D.C. to be closer to one of her sisters and began pursuing this new career. To support herself during this time, she spent a few years working at a hotel. But in 2011, Brittany switched gears and was hired by Lululemon. So Lululemon is apparently a high-end athletic store geared towards those who practice yoga. Have you shopped there, Amy, or do you shop there? Megan, it's very well known, and maybe I'm wrong, but I would imagine almost all of our listeners have heard of it. They've become quite the household name. Yeah, apparently so. But they're, they're higher end. Apparently, the, an average pair of leggings in the store at that time was about $100. So that would explain why I don't shop there. <laughs> <laughs> or not anymore. Sorry. Okay. Um, regardless, Brittany was working for Lululemon at the time, and Brittany's boss was Jaina Murray. 30-year-old Jaina Murray was born on November 22, 1980 in Wichita, Kansas, to parents David and Phyllis Murray. She also had a brother named Hugh, and she was reportedly very close with her family. 
Though she was born in Kansas, Jaina was raised in Texas, and she later attended George Washington University in Washington, D.C., receiving her undergraduate, her four-year degree from there. She also studied in Madrid for part of her undergraduate education, which I always think is very cool when people study abroad, and I think she was there for like over a year or two. Jaina was in a master's program at John Hopkins University in business administration and communication and was managing the Lululemon or I don't know if she was the manager. I think she was the assistant manager. But this was in Bethesda, Maryland, as part of her studies. According to reports, Jaina was possibly hoping for a long-term corporate position with the company after completing her master's degree. Jaina loved to travel. She also volunteered for many organizations. She was described as happy someone who lived life to its fullest. She was athletic and adventurous. And she had a beaming smile in every photo I could locate, just looked genuinely happy. At the time of the events we're discussing, Jaina was uh, somewhat of a new manager, like I said, an assistant manager. And Lululemon had a very odd policy when it came to their employee security. In 2011, they did not have in-store or out-of-store surveillance cameras at this location. So in order to ensure that employees were not stealing the company required the employees to check each other's bags at the end of the shift. Do you remember the store Arden B? Nope. It was like kind of a high-end clothing store while I was in college. I worked there and everyone had to check each other's bags when they left work. Do you don't think this is problematic on several levels? Well, we're talking how many years ago? I don't I think now it would be a violation of privacy, but things were different then. It makes me feel very old to say, but Yes, violation of privacy, but I'm thinking problematic for other reasons. Like first, you could simply have employees in cahoots with each other, right? Stealing, like if like, oh, yeah. you know, we have an agreement. All right, I'll check your bag, you check mine. I've worked in several retail jobs and I, I've seen this play out like that. So yes, you're right. It's not always the best method. But also, wouldn't it make you feel uncomfortable and possibly like, couldn't it put you in a confrontational situation? Like what if you looked in someone's bag and you saw that they stole something? Like it, this is a very awkward position to have to be in. So I, I just think this is an odd policy. Nevertheless, this was this was the source policy, and it led to a very uncomfortable encounter when Jaina and Brittany were the last two employees closing the store on March 11th, 2011. Now, apparently upper management had been suspecting or had suspected Brittany of stealing for some time, and they were looking to catch her. So on this night, Jaina did her perfunctory search of Brittany's bag, and there was a pair of $80 leggings in there that Jaina was pretty sure Brittany had stolen. So she questioned Brittany, but Brittany claimed a coworker from earlier in the shift had rung her up for that order. So Jaina was unconvinced. Couldn't they just look up records? It seems like that's silly to lie about. Yeah, but she knew the policy, too. So I don't understand how she didn't think it, this is part of the pathology of talking about her behavior, too. If you know the policy, she'd been working there. So hadn't she figured that someone was going to check her bag? And couldn't Jaina have just said, where's your receipt? She, uh, she probably did. But Jaina was yeah. unconvinced. And she said, OK, I'm going to basically said I'm going to verify that information. But the two closed the store around 945 that night and left the strip mall where the Lululemon was located. Now, Jaina later called the co-worker Brittany alleged sold her the leggings. But this worker reported that it was not true. She had not sold Brittany the leggings. And in fact, Brittany was lying. And so Jaina reported the incident to upper management and was told that they would deal with Brittany in the morning. So at about 8 a.m. the next morning on March 12th, the day manager of the Lululemon, Rachel, came to open the store and found that the door was already unlocked and there was merchandise strewn everywhere. She panicked and immediately ran out onto the sidewalk 
A man who was lined up outside the Apple store next door for the new iPad saw a very upset Rachel and offered to go into the store with her to see if anything had been stolen. Because I think when she saw the merchandise strewn about and, and there was cash registers kind of also looked like it was open. It looked like a robbery. And Rachel got on the phone with 911 to report this. But the man heard moaning from the back of the store and went to investigate. What he found was Brittany Norwood, wrists and ankles zip-tied, and her face full of blood, and she was laying on the bathroom floor. But she was alive, and this is where the moaning was coming from. Unfortunately, Jaina Murray was not so lucky. When the police arrived, they found Jaina in a small back hallway. She was face down, laying in an enormous pool of blood, dead. The scene was brutal, Amy. Several of the detectives stated that this was the worst crime scene they had ever worked in like all of their years on the job. I remember seeing pictures online of the part of the crime scene. Yes, it looked, it was terrible. Uh, Jaina had severe head trauma and a ligature wound around her neck. There was glass everywhere and bloody footprints that stopped at the back door. All the money from the store was missing. Uh, since the Apple store was right next to Lululemon and they were hosting the new iPad arrival, and there were like hundreds of people lined up on the sidewalk for the sale. Police suspected that possibly this was an attempted robbery gone wrong, perhaps a crime of opportunity. Maybe someone was attempting to rob the Apple store, but saw these two young women instead and robbed them and decided to eliminate the witnesses. But one witness was still alive, and that was Brittany. And the police needed her story. Detective Deanna Mackle was first to interview Brittany Norwood at the hospital. Now, Brittany had a fairly deep wound on her forehead and scratches on her stomach, oddly. But fortunately, the injuries weren't that serious, and she was able to speak with the police. Was she in shock, or what was her affect like? Upset, very upset. She was visibly shaking and disturbed. And the story she told was that she realized the night before that she had left her Metro card behind. So she called Jaina, who agreed to meet Brittany back at the store so that they could get her Metro card, because she said she couldn't get home. According to Brittany, they re-entered the store. Remember, they had closed up around 9.45, but they re-entered mm -hmm. about 10 p.m. They went in through the staff entrance at the back of the store. Brittany said they didn't lock the doors behind them because they weren't going to be there for that long. I'm sorry, is there surveillance to corroborate this? No, remember, they don't have surveillance. That's why they have to check each other's bags. There's no outside cameras, though, either. There's going to be some surveillance okay. outside, but not from the Lululemon store, and they are not captured on surveillance. They are not captured on camera. Isn't it crazy when we talk about stories from decades ago? I, like, I couldn't imagine going anywhere without there being a surveillance camera now. We talk about this with one of our colleagues, especially if you live in New York City. I think it's something like, what, 200 times a day you can be captured on camera? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I think it's something like that. So yeah, it is weird. And this is only 10 years ago too, or 11 years ago. So this is kind of recent. Okay. So they didn't lock the door. Uh, Brittany searched for her Metro card, she said, but she couldn't find it. So Jaina offered Brittany her Metro card as she had driven to work that night and she didn't need it. But as this exchange was happening, Brittany recounted two males with ski masks entered through the staff entrance at the back. She believed that they were young white males with a significant height difference. So she described one of the men as being six feet tall and the other one as about five foot three. Brittany said that the men violently attacked them and that Jaina was dragged into the storage room by her hair as one of the men was repeatedly hitting her. Brittany said that she was also hit in the head and her assailant dragged her into the bathroom where he sexually assaulted her before zip tying her wrists and ankles, all while spewing racial slurs at her. As you had asked, she was very emotional throughout this interview, crying, shaking. 
saying that she felt like it was her fault because she had forgotten her Metro card at the store and asked Jana to come back. And had she not done this, none of this would have happened. The police ordered sexual assault examinations for both Brittany and Jana. In the meantime, they began searching for their two suspects in Jana's car. Because remember, Jana had returned, and so her car should have been parked right there if she was just running into the store, but it wasn't. It wasn't near the store. A Bethesda police officer said he remembered Jana's car from the night before, though, seeing it parked a few blocks over in a lot and recalling it because it had Texas plates. And he also reported that he thought he saw someone in the car. Meanwhile, they're investigating, but this story of these two young women viciously assaulted at a Lululemon store was all over the news. I mean... That part I do remember. It was being reported as a robbery turned murder. And initially, Amy, Brittany's story matched the scene's evidence. You said they were the police were checking for signs of sexual assault on both victims. What did they find? You're going to have to hold on to that, but it's a good question. Okay. Let me just tell you what happened before then, though. They did locate Jaina's car three blocks away, and it was immediately taken in for forensic testing. Uh, this was a good lead for the police early on, and one came right after that. Even though the Lululemon store and most other stores in the strip mall didn't have surveillance cameras, Apple did, which mm. makes sense. And caught on Apple's tape, basically, were two men wearing black clothes and caps right in the vicinity of the Lululemon doors. At what time? Right around the time of the crime. So one of the lead officers, Detective Dimitri Reuven, thought that this was a very good lead because this is exactly what Brittany described. And so even though it didn't seem likely that these two would return to the scene of the crime, Detective Reuven began a stakeout in the area just to see if the two suspects might return and if they could catch them. And as luck would have it, one night they did return and Reuven approached them, showing them the surveillance pictures that he had of them. And much to his surprise, they admitted that it was them on camera. And while Reuven thought he kind of had his perpetrators, I think, the two explained that they were busboys at the restaurant on the other side of the Lululemon, mm. and the footage was simply them leaving like they did every night. Gotcha. And their alibi was quickly confirmed by their employers and cell phone records. So they were not the assailants, but I understand why he would have immediately thought that. Yeah. It was certainly a letdown, but a few weeks later, Jana Murray's autopsy results came in, and they shocked the entire investigation. The autopsy revealed that Jaina had sustained 331 wounds on her body. That sounds personal. It does. This is an alarming number of wounds. She was, I mean, this was just brutal. She was stabbed. She was punctured, hit with blunt force trauma on her head several times, cut, bruised. And in general, there were abrasions and injuries all over her body. There were also those ligature marks, remember I had mentioned, around her neck, indicating that a rope or a cord had been used at some point to strangle her. What, did they find that at the scene? There were many things at the scene, and I'm going to tell you about that, so okay. hold on to that question as well. Her wounds well exceeded what even a brutal violent attack would usually yield, and the medical examiner confirmed that they had been inflicted by the contents, because you had asked, of a toolbox that had been found at the scene. And that toolbox included a wrench, hammer, knives, rope, and other things. And the toolbox belonged to the store. So this was not something brought in from the outside. It was there. Jaina also had a lot of defensive wounds on her hands and her arms, which would be expected. She had clearly tried to cover her head. Remember that Brittany said she saw one of the assailants hitting Jaina in the head? 
Her head sustained a lot of injuries. She had a lot of indentations in her skull, most likely that came from the hammer. A knife wound to her neck severed her spinal cord, and that was the injury that killed Jaina. But unfortunately for her, according to the medical examiner, Jaina had been alive for most of this brutal attack. Lululemon posted a $125,000 award for information leading to the assailants. The case was all over the news. Remember I told you this? And so tips started to come in. And one of those tips was a call about a violent homeless man named Keith that frequented a local bar, but he had oddly gone missing that evening. And if you recall those footprints in the store, one of them was a size 14 man's shoe and the other was much smaller. It was clearly a woman's shoe, smaller size. Oddly, the shoes had been left at the scene, so the police were able to process them. Just keep that in mind for now. I'm telling you to keep a lot in mind, but there's a lot to this story. And a manager at a local hardware store, well, he said the evening of the attacks, he had seen Keith Lockett, who was this transient man, a black male. He reported seeing him walking around the area with a white male who had a backpack on. So I don't know if you also recall, but Brittany said she thought both of her assailants were white, but I don't think she could be sure. Yep. Okay, so the police basically thought, okay, now we have two suspects. They located Keith at a local hospital. It was about 10 miles away. And guess what he's there with? Injuries. He's got a very swollen left eye and he's got blood all over his clothes. Hmm, that sounds suspicious. Yeah. The police brought him in and Keith said that he was assaulted by another homeless man. And a closer look at his clothes revealed that the blood looked very fresh. And Officer Reuven also said that Keith just didn't seem to be all quite there in a way that suggested that he would be able to formulate this plan and kind of execute this crime. Reuven took his DNA anyway, just in case, but it was not a match. And so they were back to having no suspects. Mm. Police went back to the scene again to look at the footprints, and they really started to feel like something wasn't adding up. First of all, there weren't enough footprints. I said two sets of footprints. There should have been, if there were two men, why was there only one male-sized shoe footprints? And where were the others from the women, the two women? They were walking, you know, Mm -hmm. as well. You might say that they were dragged, but it wasn't adding up. So regardless, where was the second assailant's uh, shoe prints? But what's happening with Brittany, too, during this time? Because remember, we have Brittany and and they're going to interview her again. She'd been released from the hospital and she was back at home. So Detective Reuven went to interview her again to see if he could get more information to fill in the blanks because he said a couple things just weren't adding up. So she told her story again, but this time she added a big detail. She recounted that her assailant had pushed her on top of Jaina and told her, quote, you're lucky you're cute. You're more fun to fuck with. And she said, Brittany said that she believed the man finding her attractive and uh, was the the man finding her attractive and, you know, as he said, quote, fun was the reason that she wasn't killed as well as Jaina. But this is a huge detail, right? Like, and why this didn't come up before. But according to Reuven, Brittany was crying and she was shaking in her retelling. So Reuven also asked Brittany during this interview if Lululemon sold shoes because they're still trying to figure out the shoe prints. And Brittany said no, but she said they kept two pairs in the store for customers to wear if they were being measured for alterations. Mm-hmm. Oh, OK. You, you seem to know that. I wouldn't have known that. A lot of stores do that or they used to. I don't know if they still do. But yeah, I feel like that's pretty common. Yeah. TJ Maxx doesn't do that funny. The only place I shop. So <laughs> I mean, yeah. So Reuven has given interviews and he said that he had a very weird feeling 
after that interview with Brittany. He already thought things weren't adding up, but he thought this new detail was very surprising. And the shoes, he just didn't quite understand. Where were the perpetrator's shoes then? Why would they have worn shoes that were in the store or left them there? Also, he didn't understand the purpose of the assailants dragging Brittany and throwing her on Jaina. They said that this seemed bizarre. The assailants also hadn't brought any weapons with them. Everything they'd used, including the zip ties, had all been the property of Lululemon. Hmm. So that's strange as well. The more he looked at it, the more Reuven didn't see this as an outside job. This seemed to him like an inside job, someone who knew where everything was. And Reuven was beginning to suspect it was Brittany. Well, I was going to say, and somebody who was angry at Jaina. Yes. Reuven told his team that he thought Brittany was actually the killer. And the team was surprised because she had seemed so credible. And she had seemed, you know, when we talk about what we expect people to be like, or we, we usually don't, but she seemed truly victimized. In a third interview, so they had Brittany come in again. This time they had her come to the station. And this time they asked her to provide DNA samples. Two of her siblings came with her, but then they left after she provided, you know, the DNA samples. But her siblings came back to the police station without Brittany and reported that Brittany was holding back details because she was afraid of her assailants. So the police invited Brittany back for a fourth interview. Now, let me ask you, do you think she was lying to her siblings? Yes, I don't think her siblings knew knew the truth of what was happening. I think they were starting to suspect that something was going on. But no, I don't think they knew the extent of what actually happened. And I can say, like her second interview, this is her fourth interview, but she added another huge detail. This time, she alleged that the assailants forced her to find Jaina's car keys and then made her move Jaina's car. And while she had been the one in the car and she had seen that police officer, she'd been too scared to say anything. Okay, so now she's she's realizing that there's other evidence and she needs to place herself in that car. Absolutely. But Reuven and his partner confronted Brittany with the fact that this new information didn't add up with what she had already told him. And they said, like, we know you're lying. But Brittany denied that she was lying. She maintained that she and Jaina were the victims of a brutal assault by two unknown male assailants. The detectives continued to question her, pressuring her to tell them what really happened. But she stuck to her story. Now, her brother had come to the police station with her, and he asked to speak with Brittany alone. Now he's aware something's going on. It's also never alone. Exactly. You're never alone. (laughs) And, uh, you know, uh, not surprisingly, they were recorded speaking in the interrogation room. And her brother asked her point blank if she had anything to do with what happened to Jaina. And she responded by saying, I just don't want to talk about it here. Now, that's not exactly what an innocent person would say, right? And as the evidence rolled in, Brittany's story really began to crumble. Because remember, you asked me about the sexual assaults? Well, both hers and Jaina's exams came back negative. Neither of them were sexually assaulted. It's so surprising to me. Did Brittany not think that they were going to like do a test? Did she think they would just take her word for it? I'm not sure that she thought that far ahead or perhaps she thought those tests are not completely conclusive. Somehow she could, you know, I'm not quite sure what she was thinking about that one. The hospital also reported that Brittany's wounds, while it looked bad, they were superficial. Remember I said she had a bloody face? 
It looked like someone who they said was sitting upright, not prone on the floor. Hmm. You know, remember she was found on the floor like that? Okay. Yep. So the police went back to the forensics on Jaina's vehicle as well, and they found that the blood they'd swabbed from the seat matched Brittany. So now, you know, she's placed in the car. She's already placed herself in the car, but remember those male shoe prints? Yep. Okay. They only appeared next to the woman's shoe prints as if they were exactly like in step with each other or as if someone had taken the men's shoes and specifically pressed them on the floor to leave a print. Okay. Okay. So you're starting to see that coming together Mm -hmm. with all of this evidence. And after this interview, the police arrested Brittany and she was charged with the murder of Jaina Murray. Jaina's family was shocked as they'd been so worried about Brittany during this whole ordeal. Can you imagine the betrayal they must have felt? Oh, my goodness. So what actually happened at this store, On a, you know, at this Lululemon in Bethesda on March 11th? Interestingly, Amy, Apple store employees who were right next door, remember how I told you the store was located adjacent? They heard noises coming from the Lululemon store after 10 p.m. on that fateful night. They reported hearing grunting, yelling, and thuds. You can actually look it up. And you can see the Apple employees on surveillance listening at the adjoining wall. Why didn't they do anything? Well, nobody called the police, but one Apple employee did report to a security guard who apparently did not follow up on this. Let me tell you something. According to a transcript, I'm quoting here, the employee heard one female voice which sounded hysterical and another female voice saying, talk to me. Don't do this. Talk to me. What's going on? The employee heard additional screaming, yelps, and yells, and also heard a voice say, God help me, please help me. What? Yeah, no, she didn't believe it was the same voice as the other one who said, talk to me, but she wasn't quite sure. But all of the Apple employees left the store after 11 p.m. Nobody called the police. And I don't know why the security guard didn't follow up with this. But isn't this shocking? I mean, when you see them listening at the walls, they're listening to a murder. I mean, if I heard someone screaming, God, please don't do this to me, I'd like to think I would have taken a little bit more action, right? Have you seen any interviews with those employees? Are they- I haven't, no. Like regretful? No. I haven't. I'm not blaming them. Of course, no. this is no one's fault except the murderer's fault, but I would imagine if I was them, I would I would feel a little sad about that. I would have to imagine so as well. So things changed at trial. Brittany did not stick to her claim of innocence. The evidence was just too strong. So what do you think she was going for at trial? Self-defense. What else could it have been? Yeah. Because she was, so she got to the point where she was no longer claiming that there were these two assailants. She's saying she, yeah. so she's either going to do self-defense or insanity. They were looking to eliminate premeditation is what they were looking to do because she had been charged with premeditating this crime. Remember, she asked Jana to come back to the store. So they were trying to show that there was a lack of premeditation and that she didn't plan on this happening. They were also trying to show that Brittany had only wanted Jaina to come back to the store to try to reason with her about reporting the theft. Gotcha. Okay. I think that's a fair point. It's possible. So their point was that when Jaina refused, you know, she had already said she reported it. Brittany snapped and attacked her. That is what they Mm -hmm. are going for. It's possible. The jury didn't buy it, though. In November of 2011, after an eight-day trial, Brittany was found guilty of first-degree murder, and she was subsequently sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. How old was she? She was 29. Okay. And she has not been granted any appeals. I mean, this is a really vicious, vicious crime. 
uh, the amount of injuries that Jaina sustained. Do we know if these two had a history prior to this incident? Because it just seems there was so much emotion that was there a history of her, of these two women having issues? So I think that they did not like each other. I do recall reading that in, in a report that there was a history of, you know, not being friendly with each other. I think that also Brittany knew that they were, you know, employees were on to her as well. But you're right. It strikes me as something like a serious history because of the amount of injuries. But also remember, the medical examiner said that Jaina was alive for most of the attacks. So I guess Brittany kept going until she killed her. They estimate that it took, you know, 10 or 15 minutes, this attack, at least. Which is why I would imagine the jury also went for first degree, because not only do they say premeditated, it was just the vicious nature of the attack. She had plenty of time to change her mind. Exactly. She She could have stopped. Right. Exactly. I agree. Brittany, have any history of violent behavior? Because this seems extra, you know, this seems extremely violent. And I can't imagine that this was the first time she's done something like this. She had no history of violence. The history that she had was of lying and stealing, but no violence. Yes, I remember that now. Theoretically, this is very hard to explain. It's very complicated. Any diagnosed mental illness? No, but that doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So, of course, I'm going to try to break this down a little bit. I think that, first of all, I think that the pressure on Brittany was increasing with each failure in her life. So I see like she's had failure on top of failure. I think getting expelled was a precipitating event for Brittany, almost signaling like the downfall of a young woman who, you know, seemed to have it all and also seemed willing to take what she wanted. She had entitlement. Yeah. She would take things, right? Okay. I think that she viewed the jobs like at Lululemon as beneath her, you know, kind of menial. And I think that she grew resentful that she had to take these jobs and that she had to keep them and that someone like Jaina was her boss. And how old was Jaina? A year older. Jaina was 30. Okay, so, yeah, so she probably saw them that they should, you know, why is she above me where we should be peers? I think so. And as I said, you know, they already suspected Brittany of stealing. So I think that, you know, Brittany knew that this was the incident that was going to get her fired. And I think she I I think she did panic, to be honest. And I think that she likely did try to convince Jaina not to report her. But Jaina, being an honest employee, wasn't going to back down. I think Brittany did snap in some way, judging by the number of wounds to Jaina. And I suspect that we're looking at someone who fits under low self-control. That's where I was going theoretically with this. So Godfordson and Hershey's theory, which is actually called the general theory. I think that people with low self-control, according to their theory, uh, well, obviously, people with low self-control are more likely to commit impulsive crimes. Just want to point that out. Other characteristics of people with low self-control are that they have a preference for physical activities, self-centeredness, lack of realistic long-term planning, temper, and general impulsiveness. And I see a lot of these traits with Brittany. You know, again, this is really hard to understand. I think this this was, mm-hmm. you know, her temper, and I think she snapped, which doesn't mean, it doesn't excuse her behavior, mm-hmm. but I see low self-control. Now, the second half of her crime, the cover-up, is where I say rational choice theory comes in. Because the planning that went into the cover-up shows that she knew how bad this was and she was willing to do whatever it took to cover up her crime. Look at what she staged the scene herself to match this concocted story. And even though it was a short amount of time, she seemed to put a lot of thought into it. She also lied easily, according to the police, and seemed quite natural and quite upset and quite credible, which was the scary part, I think, for everyone, how believable she was. That's why I'm wondering any, any chance of sociopathic traits... When people could feign emotion like that, you always have to wonder if there's 
Some personality disorder. I would wonder the same. I don't know of any that she was diagnosed with. And some might call her a pathological liar, but I, I probably wouldn't call her that because pathological is lying without a real motive or end game. But non-pathological lying is utilitarian. It has a purpose. But I would also question whether or not she had personality disorder as well. So I understand why you had asked that. And, and it's just a shocking crime. Even if I look at it and explain it as maybe, you know, low self-control, it still shocks you know, it still shocks me even. So did the criminal justice system get it right? This is one of the easier cases in this regard for me because I think it's an overwhelming yes in terms of apprehending Brittany, trying her and convicting her. I'd also like to commend the detective work in this case. They were diligent, but they moved quickly. And in an interview I saw with Detective Reuven, he mentioned that there was some real fear of the repercussions of falsely accusing Brittany, a reported victim who was involved. This could have really backfired, as, you know, we've seen in certain cases. <laughs> I was going to say, look at Denise Huskins. Exactly. And I think he was yep. scared, but his instincts told him that, it, you know, it was Brittany. And they followed the evidence. And really, the evidence is what led them to Brittany Norwood. Do you see any hint of neutralization theory here? Uh, I think I can. How so? You want to explain? I think I can. Yeah. So neutralization theory is when people can justify their actions or, you know, neutralize their behavior using different justifications. So it could be condemning the condemner in the sense that Brittany felt like, you know, Jaina did her wrong. And so that that justified her actions. I mean, obviously, it's not at all rational. Brittany might have even been denying, you know, responsibility in that regard. It's definitely possible. So I know that some people might ask, why the episode was named the Brittany Norwood story and not the Jaina Murray story. And the only reason why is because we had to focus so much on, uh, you know, I had to focus so much on trying to figure out the explanation for what Brittany did. And it was more about determining the criminological motives and the theory on this. And that's the only reason I named it the Brittany Norwood story. I just wanted to point that out for anyone who, you know, didn't quite understand. I just felt like I had to really do a lot of digging on what would have driven this woman to commit such a heinous crime. Almost every crime we talk about, I think, could be explained routine activities theory. Yes. But I do think this one, we, I have to mention it. So routine activities theory talks about the presence or absence of three variables. So the lack of a capable guardian. So there was nobody else around to protect Jaina. And as we mentioned, there wasn't even surveillance, right? You had a motivated offender, Brittany, who was angry, upset, seemingly spiraling, and then an attractive target, which would be... The fact that Jaina was somebody who angered Brittany and again, she was by herself and apparently Brittany was able to overcome her either by having a weapon or her strength, whatever it was. Yeah, uh, I mean, that fits. Uh, routine activities theory explains a lot. The only reason I don't usually go to it is because it I know assumes, you like it as macro. Yeah, right? I, I, I do. I like it as macro because yeah. it's supposed to explain crime rates, not singular crime, but also because it just assumes that everyone's a motivated offender and. That's the problem. You have to dig into the motivation. That's pretty much that theory. They just assume everyone has a motivation. Mm -hmm. So, you know, what does it matter what someone's motivation yeah. is, mine or yours? But it certainly fits. And it does explain yeah. that, you know, of course, the, the lack of surveillance really mm -hmm. plays yeah. a role in this crime. So thank you for pointing that out. Okay. Before we go today, I think we also have some questions from our supporters, right? Yes, we have two questions today. Let's take the first one here. Um, other than criminology, what were you interested in studying or did you consider anything else? So I've told you before that I was interested in psychology and just social justice in general, but I did study nutrition for a hot minute. 
Oh, I could see that. Yeah. All right. Yeah. And then what happened? I don't know. It was just too much science for me. Yeah. And I wanted to do something more, um, you know, social justice related. I studied communications for a hot minute, but it just wasn't for me, even though I liked the sound of my own voice. It was all the other stuff that I just wasn't crazy about. And I actually studied, I think I've said this, political science because my advisor told me that criminal justice was just a trend and it would pass. Wrong. <laughs> so <laughs> that was it. But someone had also asked us what we would do if we didn't do this. And I, I know that I said once that I would be uh, probably would want to be a crime reporter. Mm-hmm. And in some ways, I, I guess I yeah. am, but writing yep. about it. The next question asks, what are your views on the MAOA gene? And the assertion that abnormal versions of the gene can result in aggressive behaviors. So the MAOA gene has earned the nickname warrior gene. That's how I refer to it when I talk about it in my class. Basically, it's just a gene that has been linked to aggression in observational and survey-based you know, studies. But there's been no experimental studies that have been able to show that the warrior gene actually drives any type of aggressive behavior. So I'm a little skeptical of it. I definitely don't think that it should ever be used as a defense. Maybe it could help us understand why some people, you know, looking at nature versus nurture, why some individuals thrive in certain environments that other people don't. But I think there's just too many other genes that play into it. Too many variables, too many factors to ever look at, you know, this one gene and say that this is the reason. I also just would point very simply to the fact that correlation is not causation. So it's possible that there's, you know, a correlation, but that doesn't mean it's what drives the behavior. I do believe, though, if someone does have an abnormal version of the gene and then that individual experiences a traumatic event, then, yes, that could create what we consider the perfect storm of nature versus nurture. Absolutely. And it, it, look, it could be that the gene is responsible for aggressive behavior. I just don't think we could say mm-hmm. that for sure. Well, thank you so much for your questions. We appreciate them. And we'll catch you next time on Women in Crime. Women in Crime is hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer and editor is James Varga. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash women in crime. Sources for today's episode include The Washington Post, an episode of the show Price of Duty on Oxygen, transcript from Norwood v. Maryland, The Appellate Decision, and Jaina Murray's obituary.